All right, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 15. We're using the Blue Bibles. It's page 1023. We're going to begin in verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter. Now, next week, we're going to be entering into the Advent season. So we're going to be taking a break from the book of Acts, and we're going to be studying through some of Isaiah. So next week's passage is Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. And you might want to study ahead because these are probably going to be a little tricky. And we're actually taking a break from Acts for a good while because I believe at the first of the year we're going to be going back to Romans. Yes. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Okay, so our passage today is Acts 15, 22 through 41. And our passage today is a continuation, continuation of last week's passage. So last week we saw that the early church not only contended with persecution, but also with strife and division. We saw some Jewish men teaching the necessity of circumcision for salvation teaching that Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved. And this caused a lot of head-scratching and debate. And they ended up settling the debate back in Jerusalem and then writing a letter to be sent back to the church in Antioch. So in our passage today, we're going to take a look at that letter. Now, I know that was a very abbreviated recap of last week, but that was intentional because of... A little later, I'm going to give a more detailed recap of last week's passage. So, read along with me, starting in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us to have come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved, beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, so this is our passage for today. It's a long one, so take a few moments, mull over it, and then a few, in a few minutes, your um, table leader will lead you in the discussion. All right, so again, this passage is a continuation of last week's passage. So I'm going to do a quick little recap. A dispute came up when some men from Judea, some Christian Jews, go up to Antioch, and they start teaching, insisting the Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved, that they must keep the ancient Jewish custom of circumcision taught by Moses. And this stems back to Abraham. You know, God originally gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham, Abraham, Genesis 17. So circumcision had its purpose in its time. It was a means of helping Jews think of themselves as being different from the rest of the world. The ritual accomplished its purpose. But without faith, it became a legalistic means of securing they're standing before God, at least in their thinking. So some Jews still believed and insisted that you had to be circumcised to be saved. So basically they were saying, you Gentiles can be saved, you just first have to become Jews. Gentiles can be saved, you just have to become Jews first. Um, to come under the Mosaic law, most specifically under circumcision, but this was just the entry point of coming under all the Mosaic law. These men thought that grace was too easy for Gentiles. And just for clarity, a Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. Well, Paul and Barnabas strongly disagreed with these men, and they debated the matter. And the matter wasn't settled in the debate that happened in Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas and some others, they leave Antioch and go back down to Jerusalem to meet with the, um, to seek counsel from the church leaders. And there they had a big church council with the apostles and elders. And as they gathered together, they hashed this thing out. They argued a lot. Peter spoke. Paul and Barnabas spoke. And finally James spoke and said, hey, this is how it's going to be. We're not going to trouble these Gentiles. To submit to Jewish commands would be to doubt what God had already done for them by grace alone. And it was decided. Now in the aftermath of this council meeting, they decided to write a letter to these Gentile believers to be delivered to them. So with that letter, we pick it up here in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. 
So I love how this begins. It seemed good. It pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church. You know, they debated and they came to an agreement. They came to a unified understanding. You know, they distinguished between what was true in God's word and what was merely human tradition. So, you know, it's remarkable how Christians who once disagreed, who disagreed strongly, can gather in love and be convinced of the truth. A stubborn Christian being persuaded by the scriptures, persuaded by love. This is key for a healthy church. So they chose two men to accompany Paul and Barnabas to take a letter back to the church in Antioch. And they chose Judas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. So let's take a look at that letter. This letter is the official findings of the Jerusalem Council. And we need to note that this letter was written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So it was written to specific people for a specific time, not for necessarily for the universal church. Um, pick it up in verse 23. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettled in your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves would tell you the same things by the word of mouth. Okay, so they came to the conclusion that, hey, we don't feel obligated to these men's teaching. You know, and I like the way they disassociate themselves from these men. They didn't come from us. We didn't send them. They came up on their own accord. You know, we disputed their doctrine and we decided, no, they're wrong. Then the letter goes on to say, we've also sent two strong godly leaders, Judas and Silas, to tell you from their own mouths what the letter says. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Okay, so this letter implies a clear leading of God in the decision rendered. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So, hey, this is good stuff, right? These church leaders are not making decisions without first seeking approval from the Holy Spirit. This is another key for a healthy church. If church leaders are making decisions without the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit, they might as well pack up, lock the doors, and skip town. I mean, really. You know, when Cal and I are making church decisions, we always pray for wisdom and guidance and discernment from the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we seek confirmation from Him. You do know that the Holy Spirit is a Him, right? It's a person. It's not an it. It's not some mystical wind. The Spirit is likened to the wind that He blows where it will. And He's described as a sound from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind but that's not who he is that's not what he is 
He's a person. He has feelings. He can be grieved. He's the third person in the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he guides us in all truth and wisdom, and we seek confirmation from him. And when we receive it, when it seems, when Kyle and I receive confirmation from him, when it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us, is then and only then do we move forward in church decisions. So at the end of verse 28, the letter goes on to say, we're not going to burden you with anything, speaking to Gentiles. We're not going to burden you with this yoke they're trying to put on you. We're not going to put legalistic, unnecessary yokes on you. But we are going to ask this of you. And the council gives four requirements to abstain from. And these are the requirements. Verse 29. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So what's all that about? Well, these are the same four things that Jane mentioned last week, just a slightly different order. Two of the council requirements involved issues of morality, avoiding idolatry and sexual immorality. And two involved issues of food. So why food? Well, the dietary restrictions were because the early church often shared common meals together, just like we do here. And these meals were often called love feasts, and they were held in conjunction with the Lord's Supper, just like we do here. And this is one of the reasons, or the reason, why we do what we do here, because we're trying to model the early church. Um, <clears throat> so these meals, these love feasts, would bring Jews and Gentiles together. Now in such a setting, a Gentile might horrify the Jewish Christian by eating meat that was not kosher. Kosher means it's food that's been prepared according to the requirements of Jewish law. So in this compromised agreement, legalistic Jews no longer insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised, and the Gentiles accepted a change in their eating habits. Now, these decisions were not regarded as divine ordinances, but rather as stipulations for fellowship between two parties. Their current concerns were not so much theological as practical. So the first requirement was to abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols. So in the ancient world at this time, in the first century, when you went down to the meat market to buy meat, most of the time that meat had already been sacrificed to an idol. The meat market and the butcher shops were at the temples of pagan idols. So where these animals were being sacrificed to these idols all the time, so naturally there was a lot of meat left over, right? So these temples of these pagan idols would take this meat and sell it to the meat markets, the butcher shops, who would then turn around and resell it to the public. Now this was a huge point of controversy for Christians in the New Testament times. Some of them would say, hey, there's no such thing as Zeus. I don't care if this meat has been sacrificed, sacrificed to Zeus. He's a figment of your imagination. That's a good piece of meat. That's a tasty T-bone. I'm eating it. 
But there were others that would say, good heavens, we're supporting idolatry when we buy and eat this meat. We can't do that. This meat is polluted. It's been offered to idols, false gods. So there was legitimate differences of Christian opinion and conscience concerning the matter. A Christian with a Jewish background would be more sensitive to this. They would be like, I'm not touching this meat. So what does James tell them? Listen, you Christians, speaking to the Gentiles, you're rubbing shoulders with the Jewish community in and outside the church. Don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol because you're going to offend a Jewish person. Just don't do it. Second, they were told to abstain from blood and what has been strangled. That's two items, but I'm linking them together. So blood, what's that about? Well, food by then was often prepared using blood. For an example, blood sausage. Some people still eat that today. I can't imagine. Just let me say, I have a hard time watching Tina prepare raw meat and then sitting down 20, 30 minutes later and enjoying it. And you might be thinking, wow, what a wimp. <laughs> but hey, that's just me. When we go out for steak, I tell them to burn it. Don't bring me no semi-mooing cow to me. Uh-uh, ain't going to happen. So James says, look, don't eat the blood. And I say, right on James. <laughs> And then he said, don't eat animals that have been strangled. Well, what difference does that make? Strangle has to do with the kosher preparation of food. Strangle means to suffocate, to choke to death. So an animal that has been strangled is deprived of life without the shedding of blood. So if you're going to prepare something kosher, you never strangle it because you're leaving the blood inside of the animal. Instead, you cut the jugular vein, bleed it out, because God commanded in the Levitical law, you shouldn't eat blood because life is in the blood. And this is what it all boils down to for the Jew. The Levitical law commands that you don't eat blood or things strangled because the blood is sacred. You know, Orthodox Jews, as they do to this day, were exceedingly careful not to eat any meat, not thoroughly drained of every drop of blood. And then a certain rabbi from Galilee had the audacity to say, to proclaim, except you drink my blood, you have no life in you. And, you know, many Jews walked away at that point, not to follow him anymore. So James and the council says in the letter, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood, don't eat things that have been strangled. Eat kosher food, food that has been prepared according to the requirements of Jewish law because it won't offend the Jewish people in your community and you want to reach them for Jesus Christ. And finally, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. If you recall when I preached a couple months ago, we talked about how immoral the city of Antioch was. They were known for their sexual immorality. So because of the context today, I don't believe the sexual immorality they're referring to is adultery or fornication. Um, the Gentile, you know, Paul and Barnabas taught for over a year in Antioch. They addressed the sexual madness in that city, you know, that they were known for. They addressed it intently, I'm sure of it. 
So these Gentiles knew that adultery and fornication was sin and wrong. So because of the context, I believe the type of sexual immorality they're most likely referring to is probably linked back to the same Levitical law that would cover meat sacrificed to idols, eating blood, and things strangled. It most likely has to do with marriage practices that would be okay in the pagan world, but prohibited in the Jewish world, such as incest, marrying close relatives. In the Jewish world, they would say, you can't marry a second cousin. But in the pagan world, they might not have a problem with it. But because of Levitical law, Jewish believers would be like, would be like no, you can't do that. So the whole purpose of these four requirements is this. You Gentiles, you are saved by come under the law of Moses. But, but do you know what you do have to come under? The law of love. So while the law of Moses would never tell you, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, the law of love says, why would I needlessly offend my Jewish brother or sister who sits next to me at the church meeting? Why would I bring pork chops to the church potluck and say, hey, I got the liberty, and if you Jews don't like it, you don't have to eat it? You know, that could be the attitude amongst these Gentile believers. I've got the liberty. I'm free in Jesus. You do have the liberty. You are free in Jesus. But let me tell you what you're free to do. You're free to love your brothers and sisters in Jesus. You need not to needlessly offend people in the community and destroy your witness among them. So the decision was clear. You don't have to become Jewish to be saved. But it was also very clear. What are you going to do with the freedoms that you now have in Christ? And that's a great question for us. You know, do we practice laying down our freedoms out of, out of love for someone else? You know, in Jesus, you're free to do it. You are. You can do this. You can do that. But not if it's going to hurt or offend or cause someone to stumble. Now, I saw some eyebrows raised, so hear me say this. I'm not saying our freedom in Jesus is freedom to sin, Okay. I'm free in Christ, so I can go hog wild and do whatever I please. No, that's absurd. Freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Freedom in Christ means we are no longer under the law. We are in grace. You know, and the world's got it backwards. They think we Christians have no freedoms. They think we're the ones in bondage, right? The world thinks being a Christian is too restrictive. They believe it robs them of their freedom to indulge in sinful practices that they believe makes them happy. The bottom line is the world loves sin more than it does God. Um, they think being a Christian is boring and suffocating and robs you of your freedoms. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the complete opposite. A non-Christian is a slave to sin. Um, they can, they, whether they realize it or not, they have no say-so in the matter. They, they're in complete bondage to sin. And, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I can say this with authority because I know who I was before Christ, as a lot of you do. You know, sin is a slave master, you know, that controls and demands and shackles and ultimately leads to spiritual death. Does that sound like freedom to you?
No. Jesus, on the other hand, sets the captive free. He breaks the power of sin. You know, in Christ, if he's reigning in you, you are no longer controlled by desires. You might still have desires, but they don't control you. You control them. Um, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't mean that we never sin. It doesn't mean that we're incapable of sinning, that we're these perfect holy people. No. But what it does mean is we're no longer in bondage to sin. Jesus gives us the power to overcome and say no. And when we do fail, you know, he grants us forgiveness through repentance. But for an unbeliever, you know, they will die in their sin and they will face the consequences. So freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Now, I can't wait to get back into the book of Romans. Romans addresses this topic so beautifully. You know, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God, Romans 6. So we're free in Christ. You know, and this freedom that I have, that I have, might not be the same freedom that you have or someone else has. Or freedom you have might not be the same freedom that I have, right? Um, I went back and forth, and I'm going to say this from the pulpit, <laughs> but I believe I have the freedom. Um, we are a church family. We know each other. We love one another. We share whatever with each other. You know, I know of churches where people look down their noses at you when they talk to you. We're not that church. We never have been. Um, so I'm going to give you an example of a freedom I have, okay? I have the freedom to drink a beer with my dinner if I choose to. One beer. I can do that because I don't have a drinking problem. I never have. Um, now, I'm not free to drink five or six drinks and then stumble through the house acting a fool. Mm-mm. There's no sin in a beer. But if that drink becomes several drinks and now I'm intoxicated, then I'm in sin. Okay? Now, if I'm with a friend and I know this person is offended by alcohol or this person has a history of a drinking issue, then out of love for that person, I don't drink a drink with them or around them, right? All right, now don't go say, okay, we got trouble, we got a drinking elder on our hands. It's, it's not every night by any means. It's sometimes in the summer, especially when it's really hot, you know, I want something really cold with my dinner and it's all, only one, you can ask my family. It's, there's no sin in that, okay? So, Christians should never use their liberty to needlessly offend others or keep people from coming to the kingdom of God. Okay? So, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
not by conformity to the law, not by that kind of obedience. That kind of obedience comes into our lives as a result of true faith. Okay. So let, the letter ends by saying, if you abstain from these four things, you will do well, farewell. Notice it doesn't say if you abstain from these four things, you will secure salvation or go to heaven. It just says you will do well. You won't offend, you won't needlessly offend people if you keep these requirements. So this debate over circumcision, it could have split the church. But Paul and Barnabas and the Jews in Antioch made the right decision. They sought counsel from the church leaders and from God's word. You know, and our differences should be settled the same way. Um, by seeking wise counsel and by abiding by the decisions. You know, don't let disagreements divide you from other believers. Third-party assistance is a sound method for resolving problems and preserving unity. All right, so verse, picking up in verse 30. <clears throat> so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the end result of this potential crisis was great joy. The law obligates, the gospel liberates. You know, Paul and Barnabas re remained in Antioch preaching and teaching and making disciples, but not for long. Verse 36, not just some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. All right, so... So Paul and Barnabas, they are planning a second missionary journey, but they have a sharp disagreement concerning John Mark. Now, I just got through telling you, don't let disagreements divide you. And here we see Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement that separates them. But in this case, it ends well. God will use both men. Paul wanted to take another trip, primarily to revisit the churches that had been established on the first missionary journey. But this grand plan quickly unraveled when the topic of John Mark came up. Paul didn't want to take him along because he had deserted them on their first journey. He did not think he was reliable. Barnabas, on the other hand, wanted to give his nephew another chance. So they had a shop that a disagreement, a heated argument that separated them. The end of verse 39, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, 
having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So each formed his own missionary team. Barnabas took John Mark and sailed west to Cyprus. And these two are not mentioned again in the book of Acts. Paul chose Silas as his partner. Silas was part of the Jewish council who wrote the letter and was one of the two men chosen to represent the Jerusalem church by taking the letter back to Antioch. So this second missionary journey began approximately three years after the first one ended. Um, this journey would lay the groundwork for the church in Greece. And God used both these men, Paul and Barnabas. We see kingdom messengers depart in Antioch in two directions. And we see the sovereignty of God as two missionary teams were formed and sent out. And John Mark's story does not end here. It's clear from Paul's other letters that Paul grew to respect Mark, Colossians 4.10, and that Paul needed him in his work, 2 Timothy 4.11. And John Mark would go on to write the gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Mark. All right. So at this time... Um, we're going to continue our worship by responding to God. Um, we respond to God through our prayers. Um, so take a few moments, and however God is leading you to pray, just pray to yourselves. And, um, and after a few moments, I will close this. Father God, you are worthy of all our worship. You are worthy of all praise, and glory, and honor. And God, you have done great wonders. You stretched out the universe. You spread out the earth. God, you made the sun to rule over the day and the moon and stars to rule over to the night. And God, you are sovereign over all of this. 
all of heaven and all of earth is subject to you and your will. Father God, you are awesome and mighty, and there's no other like you. And Father, your love for us is overwhelming. It's, it's mind-blowing that, that you loved us so much that you gave up your own Son, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might be saved, that we can be forgiven and reconciled back to a holy God. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Jesus, you are perfect in every way. You are beautiful and majestic and completely wrapped in light. You are Savior, Protector, Provider. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I lift up the broken to you. Father, we are a broken people, but there's great hope. You made us, therefore you can fix us. May we humble ourselves in our brokenness and call out to you. You are faithful to hear and heal and restore us, and we thank you. Father, we continue to lift up our nation to you. We've seemed to have lost our way. The division, the hypocrisy, the evil in our land and government just seems unprecedented. But Father, we don't have to look back very far in history to see that there's nothing new under the sun. Nations, kings, and leaders have always been corrupt. God, you are our only hope. We pray that you would just stir the hearts of those in power. And Father, we continue to lift up the abortion crisis to you. I pray that we won't sleep or become complacent on the issue of abortion. Father, we mourn the death of those children who were denied the right to life. God, you are the author of life. So who is man to take it away? I pray that we will be a voice for the unborn children, that we will stand up for the helpless. Father, we pray for the baby box in Gates County, that it will come and come quickly. Father, we pray that this evil in our land would be completely eradicated. Father, I lift up those in our church and community who are in need of healing from health concerns. I lift up those of us who are going through trials. God, we pray for a mighty move of your hand in all these situations. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. And I pray, Father, that we would repent of any sin that might cause our prayers to fall on deaf ears. In a few moments, Father, we're going to partake in the Lord's